the optimal life. So, Heather, I, I see one of the things from your past, which stuck stuck out immediately when, when I saw your email, was uh, uh, the sexual assault uh, issues that you had to face at some point in your life. Take us back. When, when was that occurring? At, at what age? Yeah. Well, what a start. Let's dive right in, right? <laughs> so, and it's interesting because this is something that I've only recently gone public about. I was always very vocal about anxiety and the issues that I was experiencing there, but I sort of kept the sexual assault that I experienced private. And a lot of that had to do with shame around experiencing that. Um, and for me, the sexual assault was sort of like the kickoff to then developing an eating disorder. And that was as well, something that I wasn't talking about a lot. So the assault happened in university. It was in 2007. And I think this is not an uncommon experience, unfortunately, for uh, women in university, but I was at a party with friends and ended up, you know, overindulging more than I, than I meant to. And before I knew it, I was in a situation that I shouldn't have been in and that was with a friend um, and afterwards, it took me, you know, a really long time to even, I think, come to terms with the fact that that was a, an assault that I did not have consent in that moment and uh, and impacted me profoundly. As I said, it, it sort of led to developing an, an eating disorder. And, and this, it can be uh, a precipice for a lot of people is that when you experience some form of trauma, you know, you can try to shove it down. You can try to not admit that it happened and then it can transition into something else. Okay, so let's talk into, about that a, a little bit for some, because there may be other women that are in the similar situation that are struggling to comprehend, hey, was it this? Am I just making this up? Maybe I'm crazy. I'm sure you had those feelings on and off for a period of time. So t take us through a little bit in a little more detail, if you would. Uh, uh, what do you how, how do you know? How do you know for sure, especially when there's drinking involved? You know, you're a little inebriated. Maybe your senses weren't all there. How, how, what, what are some things that a woman that needs to think to herself? Hey, was this consensual or was I forced to do something against my will? Yeah, I think for me, it was really the insight of a therapist that helped me figure it out. Because for years, I just blamed myself. I said, you know what, Heather, you were too drunk. And this was a friend. So it, it therefore, like it, it must have been consensual. And so I really tried to explain it away. And I think when we go into that territory of trying to convince ourselves, it's one thing that right there is a bit of a flag that, okay, this, this might not be what I, what I thought it was. And yeah, as I said, you know, it, it took me many years to come to terms with the fact that I did not have consent, but I would encourage people out there to to really think about that, uh, that bit of consent is, was I in my right mind to be able to say yes? And in my case, I was not. Mm. So were you telling him during the act, uh, when you guys are together, are you telling him no, 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 and, and, but it just didn't stop? I would assume it was something like that. So from what I remember of the incident, I was saying no no at the beginning and you know this is I, I i don't want to no no and then i sort of reached a point where it was happening that i disassociated from it i said i remember just shutting off 
and thinking, I'm just going to separate from my body in this moment because my body is going through one thing mentally. I can't be there. I can't be a part of this. This can't be happening to me. And so I disassociate it. And that's also a common trauma response is that we separate because that is how we can deal with things and move on from it is to say, that was almost like a separate person that happened to. And so I remember feeling this very clear separation of brain shutting off to say, this Mm. isn't happening. We're ignoring it. I'm hearing a little crackling sound. I don't know if that's coming from your audio, but uh, it's not bad, but um, we'll, we'll we'll take a look at it, but. uh, Okay. We we can see how it goes. I can try to switch mics if if it keeps going. Sure. So, okay. So that makes sense. And then, and then, so that's kind of how you, we're able to come to uh, uh, the realization of, of what truly occurred. Um, and then you mentioned that that took years because you, you said that led to a, a uh, an eating disorder, which I find to be very interesting because as we've so often in life, whenever there's something that we bad that's happening to us, it's usually not the first thing. It's usually triggered from a prior event. So talk yeah. to us. How do you go from the sexual assault thing to then having trouble with the, with the food. So I think, you know, it definitely was a lot of components in place. So there were things from childhood that, that sort of accumulated. And so for example, growing up, I was always a really sensitive kid, any sort of criticism. And I would be in tears. I was a perfectionist. I had to get top marks. I put so much pressure on myself And so those types of pieces can lead to someone developing an eating disorder, but perhaps maybe not just on their own, but it was also that coupled with experiencing this trauma that led me to really just not be able to cope with it. So my brain kind of went, this is too much. What you've experienced is too much. We don't know how to process this level of emotion. So let's just not process it. And what we're going to do is we're going to turn to food instead. And so for years, I had bulimia and I would, when I was having strong emotions and I couldn't cope, I would eat food and then I would purge it after. And that was like my way to, to cope with life, basically. When that starts happening and the first time you get the urge, are you confused? Are you scared? How do you comprehend that moment of, hey, I just ate to now force myself to throw up? Yeah, it's. I mean, I wish I could remember, you know, the very first time that it happened and why I turned to that specific coping mechanism. But what I sort of can recall is that in that moment, and so many of us do it, right? A lot of us do turn towards food for comfort because, you know, before we know it, like the chip bag is empty or the pint of ice cream is finished and food is comfort. It's wrapped up in so many emotions. But from what I recall, you know, I would get to that point where I would say, okay, I'm, I'm so upset right now. I can't cope. And so I would try to distract and use food. And then I would think, oh, but now I'm so full of this food. And not only is this physically uncomfortable, but I was tying my worth to my weight. So I thought, well, if I keep this food inside of me, I'm going to gain weight. And that is not necessarily a rational thought, but I would think, okay, if I keep this, if I have this food, I'm going to gain weight. And if I gain weight, then I'm not going to be loved. And that is sort of happening at a subconscious level, but it's this discomfort, this anxiety then that builds with having this food inside. 
that feels like then I need a different relief. And then that relief came from purging and then the shame and all that would spiral afterwards. Mm. Okay. Let's get to that. Can, can you te- text uh, that real quick? Your, the headphones or whatever you have on, cause I'm still hearing it and I don't know how it's going to come through. Yes. Okay. Let me uh, switch headphones. Yeah. 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 Sure. Do you, do you, when, when that's when, so again, when that's occurring, and um, you say, I just can't deal with this right now. You have this moment. Ah, I'm running. What are you running from? Was it something in particular or could it have been anything that was causing you angst in that very moment? I think it was really running from things that were rocking my self-worth. So anytime I wasn't feeling good enough, I wasn't feeling worthy. I wasn't feeling loved. Those for me were the triggers that led to the binging and then subsequent purging. And it took so many years to untangle because typically like, you know, what I was reacting to on the surface, maybe like getting an email from a boss and having a a stressful meeting or chat with them, like on the surface, that's not what it is. It's what's going on underneath. And it was the underneath that undercurrent of, well, if you have this meeting with your boss, then that means you're not going to be worthy. That means you're not going to be good enough. And that is, is sort of what was rocking me to my core. And I didn't know how to process without the use of food or distraction. Wow. So how long does that go on for, Heather? So my eating disorder was, I would say I was like in the thick of it for uh, about 10 years or so. 10 years. Yeah. 10 years it, it was this like was this a daily thing where you would purge was it weekly monthly How multiple long? multiple times a week i was purging and throughout this you know when i really started to get serious about my recovery i found a, a fabulous eating disorder treatment center in toronto that i started going to and then i started to get serious about therapy and upping that and like those were some of the pieces of um, recovery as well as doing the work on my own but even throughout seeing a therapist, I was still engaging in multiple times a week, binging and purging because I was still it's almost like when you go to therapy, the work gets harder, right? You're having to confront and process so many things. Right. And so for me, it got worse before. You're going to therapy and going, wait a second, this is actually making it even worse. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is exacerbating the problem. I'm doing this more often now. Exactly. Uh, right. I'm binging term. and purging even more than I was. Well, that's yeah. interesting. It was, it's almost and, like, go ahead. And also with therapy, you know, I was trying to learn different coping mechanisms. But in the meantime, it was like, hey, this big coping mechanism that you've been using, it's an ineffective one, I'll I'll say that, but this mechanism that I've been using to not process and feel emotions, that was being taken away from me. But what did I have to replace it with? You know, how was I, I was having to really confront that emotions, feel, process, let go. And that was so new to me. Mm. And then how about those days where you're not purging? All right, what are the emotions? Are you feeling are you feeling uh, even worse about yourself? And are you feeling like, hey, I, I have to purge soon or, or I'm going to be even more stressed out? Do you remember those in-between days? I would say the in-between days, because I think there's a lot of sort of moral judgment that comes along with eating disorders and with the binging purging cycle. So for me, those days, those were quote unquote good days. And I was being a good girl during those days. So there really wasn't shame or guilt that come that came along with that. It was, oh, I have my eating on track. I have every, you know, everything is good. I'm coping. But it was when the 
adversity hit, that was when I turned to, to the food end because I couldn't cope. So do you believe the psychology behind the um, making yourself, forcing yourself to vomit, basically? Do you believe the psychology behind that is that you're feeling nasty feelings, you're feeling negative feelings, and this is a way in some kind of symbolic way to release those feelings? I do believe that, yes. And, you know, for to sort of simplify it, I think it's something is happening that feels too intense to deal with. We turn towards food to cope. Then we feel even more anxious because we think, oh, if, you know, I look a certain way or things, I'm not going to be worthy anymore. So now we have to find a, a relief. And for me, that's what it was. Yes. And now were there certain foods too during that, that decade long period, were there certain foods that made you want to uh, purge more often than others? There were certain foods I had that were binge foods. Yes. That, so if I was, you know, having trouble coping with strong emotions, I wasn't turning to a bag of carrots. That wasn't comfort for me. It was typically pizza, uh, something like carb heavy, uh, sometimes candy, but I would say pizza was the most common one. And it kind of got to a point for a little bit that even outside of a binge, I couldn't have pizza because I had associated it so much with a binge food and that I wouldn't be able to control my portion with it. And and so I didn't feel safe having it outside of a binge. So when you were actually being a good girl, as you quoted before, mm-hmm. you wouldn't allow yourself to enjoy the foods that you liked the most pizza being one of them. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I, it didn't feel safe for me to eat. And, and I felt like if I started with it, I wouldn't be able to stop eating it. And then what's the feeling like after you do your binge and then your purge, are you happy? Are you sad? Are you confused? Or is it different every single time? For me, the most overwhelming emotion that I had after the cycle would be shame. I would think of why did I do that? I don't really feel any better. I'm stuck in this pattern. There was a lot of hopelessness of is this ever going to change? Of Why can't I get this under control? Why am I not strong enough? to overcome this a lot of those types of thoughts and how do you recognize if somebody is struggling with exactly this is this one of those kind of illnesses that's very easy to hide oh absolutely i hit it from everybody in my life except the my significant other that i was seeing at the time i hit it from everybody else my parents didn't know for probably about eight of those years my roommates didn't know. It, it they was, didn't see any physical changes in your body, your face, your skin. Some people would comment on my on my body changing. I mean, I think with eating disorders, it sort of depends which type you have of what your body is going to look like. I was still within a healthy range. I, at one point when I would say my eating disorder got really bad, I had lost weight, but I received a lot of compliments from people saying, oh, you look great, which is very reinforcing to keep going, keep going. You're going to get that's that probably the attention. worst thing that could be happening to you individually, being complimented with how great you look while you're fighting this, this uh, disorder. Absolutely. Yes. And I make it a point now to comment on nobody's weight. Even if you think you're saying something, quote unquote, positive to them. That's interesting. No need to to comment on other people's bodies. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So 10 long years, 10 long years, right? Uh, Probably especially looking back. um, How do you ultimately get over the hump and overcome the disorder? 
I think it was about learning to process those emotions to learn how to sit with it, even when things are uncomfortable. And so sometimes I would go through the process of feeling an uncomfortable emotion, maybe still turning towards food a little bit, but making myself sit with it, making myself sit with the discomfort. And, and so sometimes I would choose a food that would be, you know, not quite a total binge food, not quite a a super healthy, safe food, but something kind of in the middle that made me a little bit uncomfortable to eat. And I would eat that. And then I would sit with it and I would journal and I would go through all of my thoughts. What's coming up for you right now? What are you feeling? What's the, you know, the, that deeper undercurrent of what's really going on. And that kind of process helped me parse apart what was going on that to learn that it wasn't about the food. It was never about the food that it was about. I didn't know how to process these emotions and I needed to learn how to slow down, sit with it, deal with the discomfort, right? We live in a society right now where no one wants to be uncomfortable at at any point. We always want to distract, distract and pop on social media and just scroll and, you know, do all these things. We don't sit with things anymore. And so that was a real relearning for me to, uh, to, to on the journey towards recovery. That's powerful. Uh, What was the catalyst though? I mean, after something has to occur in your life for you to say, hey, I'm going to finally make a change, sit with it, journal, be mindful, these things that you started finally putting into place. What was the event that kind of finally caused you to say, I need to make a change? Well, you know, I was already a nutritionist at this point, and I still had an eating disorder. And I felt so much shame around that. And I thought, how can I counsel clients on what to eat and what is healthy for them? And then behind the scenes, be binging and purging and not taking care of myself and not and not dealing with me. So I really felt like a hypocrite in seeing clients. And it wasn't that long then into being a nutritionist that I thought, I, I need to change something. I need to really focus on recovery. It's interesting. You felt like you were defrauding your clients almost. Hey, these people are struggling. I'm telling them what they need to do, but I'm not practicing what I preach. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I I did. I I felt like a fraud that, you know, I was advising people on this and then I really wasn't practicing what I was preaching. And, you know, I still had some self-care practices in place that I was recommending to people, but I don't think that I was doing the core of the hard work to get there. You kind of alluded to it briefly earlier, but I want to dig into this other aspect of your personality, people pleaser. (laughs) So does that start at childhood? And what does that look like when it manifests into your adult life? Yes. So for me, it started in childhood. And and I'll say, you know, it can be so different for everybody. But for me, how it developed was that I grew up in a household where I was the good girl. And that is how I got attention. I got attention if I said yes, and if I, you know, always lent a helping hand, even if it, you know, even if I was busy, even if it put me out, that's how I got attention, aka love. And so that's how I developed people pleasing is that I learned to set my own boundaries aside, and that I needed to be there to show up to help others. And then, okay, and then What does that look like in your adult life? I I would imagine it looks very draining on some days because you've put all your blood, sweat, and tears and emotions into what everyone else is thinking. And then at the end of the day, Heather goes, when she's ready to 
go to bed and it's quiet. You have like nothing left for yourself. Absolutely. Being a people pleaser as an adult looks like I remember one time I was up till two in the morning baking a cake for a coworker that I didn't even like. And I was like, how did I get roped into this? How did I do this? So being a people pleaser looks like self-betrayal. It looks like when we want to say no, but we say yes. It looks like when we go to an event that we really don't want to go to, but we feel bad, you know, offending somebody. And so we show up and the result is that then we don't have time for ourselves and time to do our own practices and self-care things that make us feel good. We're just giving all of our energy to everybody else. What's the psychology behind that, Heather? What's your, your, in your opinion, when you talk about I'm baking a cake for someone I don't even like, I'm putting them, this person who I could care less about. And in fact, I have negative feelings toward in front of my own happiness. What's the psyche behind that? Because we're trying to get, love and attention from other people. We're trying to find external validation that we are in fact a good person. Meaning we don't think that we are worthy or enough internally on our own. So we try to find it from others. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, final thing that you've over one of the, these are all big topic themes that the things that you've overcome. I want to talk about this and then we'll get to some of the things that you're doing now and this holistic approach that you've taken. Um, but I want to hear about the panic attacks. When does that start happening to you? So the panic attacks were in university and it was sort of around the time that the sexual assault occurred. And I remember when I had my first one, I was at a crowded party and it was it, it, so in university, a crowded party. And all of a sudden my palms got really sweaty. My vision started to tunnel. I felt like I was going to black out. And so I locked myself in this bathroom. I remember sliding down the wall and I was thinking, I'm dying. Like, this is what's going on. I'm, this is it for me. And I only learned a bit later that that is what a panic attack is. It feels like you are dying. And since that point, I started just living in fear of it. I thought, what if this happens while I'm you know, doing an important activity. And they sort of carried with me, not super frequently, like no more than once a week I was having them, but it's such a terrifying experience that they really imprint in your brain. And I would have them while I was teaching yoga sometimes. And I would just say everybody in child's pose and put everybody down until I could breathe and, and get a hold on it. It would happen sometimes while I was running, they could be exercise induced, sort of varied, uh, but really, really terrifying experience. And when you try to fight those experiences, because I've experienced forms of panic and, and anxiety attacks as well. So I understand the feelings that you're talking about and they're very uncomfortable and it feels like the whole world's coming to an end right then and there. And when you try to fight it, it's almost the, the fighting part makes it even worse. So did you learn that? Did you learn how to cope with that over time to realize, okay, stay calm, stay relaxed. What are some of the things that you were doing then to kind of mitigate the, the attacks over time? I think really leaning into meditation and mindfulness <clears throat> helped during the panic attacks because the panic attacks, we just start getting these rapid thoughts, right? Like, like you said, the world is ending. It's, it's all doom. Everything feels so terrifying. The nervous system is so jacked up. And so what I would do is just come back to the breath and I would try to slow it down. So sometimes I would do an inhale for a count of four, an exhale for a count of six, just slow, calm breaths. I also sometimes use a technique where 
I'll try to start naming things in my surroundings. So I might pick a certain color and I might say, okay, name everything that's green. And I'm looking at what I can find that's green. And so it sort of snaps you out of that anxiety mode and puts you into this more relaxed, we call the parasympathetic side of our nervous system. Um, And it's a distraction from the panic that you're feeling as well. And, you know, when you're in those moments, you feel if, if you, especially when you're like teaching a yoga class, you probably feel like everybody in this class knows that I'm going through an attack right now. Meanwhile, nobody has a clue, which is yeah, interesting. It is. I mean, panic attacks are such an internal thing, but, and, and, you know, I'll say with anxiety in general too, that we often feel when we're anxious that everybody can tell and that we seem you know, so obvious, but it is really this internal war. Right. right. You feel like there's like a blinking red light on your forehead going panic attack. Here we yeah. are. You know? Yeah. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty wild. And, and again, that's something that, that I think a lot of people struggle with, whether you call it a panic attack or some form of anxiety attack or angst, th- those kind of things. It's like you, you need to find, you need to learn how to quiet the brain and quiet the mind in a healthy manner, which is where you're coming in. I mean, you talk about yoga and meditation. What are some of the other holistic approaches that you're taking to help people? So what I've sort of figured out, you know, after years of trial and error of dealing with this anxiety is that there's three main pillars when it comes to managing anxiety holistically. There's nutrition, there's mindset, which meditation falls under, and there's movement, which yoga falls under. And those and, you know, there's, there is no silver bullet or anything for anxiety, but this is what I have found comes the closest. Okay. T- talk us through briefly at a high level, each one of those three pillars and, and some things that people can put into place right here, right now to start getting themselves maybe in a better place mentally and emotionally. Yes. Let's get practical. So under the nutrition pillar, there are certain nutrients that we can incorporate in our diet that will help us feel calmer and happier. So we know that people who have anxiety are found to be deficient in things like magnesium and zinc, a lot of B vitamins as well. When we're stressed out, we're just burning through them. So some foods that people could work in are things like seeds, hemp seeds, chia seeds. These are incredible sources of magnesium and zinc. They're also going to provide some healthy fats that are going to support your blood sugar. Keeping your blood sugar stable is important for anxiety as well. We have things like nuts that people can work in, almonds, pistachios, especially high in magnesium, Uh, your bright colored vegetables, very high in antioxidants, that's going to support the brain. And I want to mention as well, gut supportive foods, because there is a huge link between gut health and mental health. And the bacteria in your gut do a ton for your mental health. They make a big chunk of your serotonin, what helps you feel happy and calm and relaxed. And they're also sort of communicating with the brain via neural connections, via hormones that travel in the bloodstream. And so we want to support the gut with fermented foods. So things like yogurt, sauerkraut. Uh, Sauerkraut is an incredible one because not only is it a fermented food that's going to support the bacteria in your gut, but it is also made of cabbage. And cabbage has glutamine in it, which is going to like feed the cells in your intestines. Mm. So sort of like a double duty food. What foods should we be staying away from? I recommend staying away from, or at least moderating caffeine. That's a big one. Oh, geez, I'm I'm guilty of that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And this one, I mean, it's so tricky because it's ingrained in in our culture to have, you know, coffee in the morning and, and I agree it's, it's delicious, but for a lot of people, 
it's going to affect anxiety because the point of coffee is to jack up your nervous system, right? To help you focus. And if you have anxiety, you don't need any help with that. We want to get you out of that nervous system jack up. Uh, And so finding alternatives like dandelion root is what I have in the morning. Um, Herbal tea, mushroom coffee, like those types of things could be alternatives instead. Also watching your sugar intake. That's important, especially like processed forms of sugar. So your cookies, your cakes and uh, pastries and candies and all that. Uh, That's going to spike your blood sugar, which is going to affect anxiety. Okay, so uh, we want we want the these healthy foods, um, healthy fats. You mentioned things that are zinc rich, uh, vitamin B. Um, what was the other one you, you said? Magnesium? Uh, fermented, Yeah, magnesium yeah. and fermented foods we talked yeah. about. We could also focus on leafy greens as well, and especially like your bitter leafy greens. So kale, mustard greens, radicchio, arugula. These are going to stimulate digestion, so going to be good for the gut. And they're also going to be rich in folate, which is a B vitamin that helps with mood. Are, are there any simple carbs foods that, that you are, are okay, or are they mostly all bad for you? When you say simple carbs, you know, like uh, breads, starches, uh, potatoes, those kind of things. Yeah, great question. So I am all about like real whole foods and everything in moderation. I absolutely think that these types of foods can fall into the realm of a healthy diet. I think what we want to work towards is whole grains as much as possible. So having bread, totally fine. Can it be whole grain or can it be sourdough, which is going to support the gut? Or maybe you're doing like a sprouted bread or something with a fermentation in it. That's going to be easier for digestion and going to make the nutrients more bioavailable. Okay. So that was the first pillar was the nutrition piece. Let's move to the second one. Yeah. So mindset. When I'm talking about mindset, I'm talking about meditation, having a steady meditation practice in place. I usually recommend guided meditation like 10 minutes a day, some form of either breath work or guidance that is going to help you see your thoughts as sort of separate. So meaning that we don't have to believe every thought we think. We don't have to engage with every thought that we have. We have tens of thousands of thoughts every day. It's exhausting overthinking and overanalyzing everything. Meditation, having this uh, steady practice in place, is going to help us find a bit of space between those thoughts and not engage with them to the same extent. Beautiful. And then how about the third and final pillar? Mm-hmm. Movement. So, you know, we know that a lot of us have sedentary jobs and that we don't move enough. But I want to focus here on a, on a really specific type of movement, because being someone that has traditionally been like a type A personality and an overachiever and like a go getter, I always gravitated towards really intense forms of exercise. So like high intensity interval training and things that were pretty hard on my body. But what I have found is that turning more towards lower intensity, lower impact types of movement, yoga, walking, Pilates, bar classes, these types of movement can be very regulating and relaxing for the nervous system. That's what we're trying to do when we're managing anxiety. Can somebody who's suffering from anxiety ever be uh, uh, fully healed, we'll call it? if they don't implement some kind of exercise routine into their life? I think naturally as humans, we need movement. We crave movement. So it doesn't have to be a formal exercise 
routine because I don't want us to have that association that a lot of us have of like the gym is punishment exercise, you know, is, is not something to be enjoyed. I want us to change our mindset so that we see exercise movement as something that is a real treat for the body that feels good. And so I encourage people to go towards the activities that you enjoy. But yes, I think it is a key piece of the puzzle for managing anxiety. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt. Uh, We're getting close to finishing up. How about supplementation? I know you talk about three must-have supplements as well. What are those? Yeah, so my three must-have supplements are going to be an adaptogen. So an adaptogen is an herb or mushroom that helps the body be more resilient and manage stress better. So my favorite adaptogens are ashwagandha. I take daily, really great for uh, sleep and also helps reduce cortisol in the body or main stress hormone. Rhodiola is another great adaptogen uh, or any type of of mushroom. So so that's one, focusing on bringing in an adaptogen. I think magnesium is another key one. Most of us are deficient in magnesium. It's sort of depleting from the soil quality. So even if you're getting it from food, you might not be getting enough of it. So supplementing it, it can be helpful for relaxing muscles, good for sleep, good for anxiety. And then the third supplement I think is a key one is a probiotic. And this is a supplement that's going to support the gut bacteria. And there are even specific strains that we know are supportive of uh, anxiety. And in studies, we see that when, at least in animal studies, when they give them to mice, they exhibit less anxiety-related behaviors. So strains like um, L-Rhamnosis, L-Hoveticus, certain probiotics you can look to see if they have these strains and then you know that you're supporting not just your gut but also your brain and your mood mm, this is uh beautiful stuff and let, let's finish off with uh with this exciting app of yours cultivating calm talk to us about the app she's smiling yeah here, folks. <laughs> talk to us about the app and, and what it is who should be using it uh, you know tell us more about it yeah so cultivating calm is something that's about to be released in the coming weeks. And what I've done is taken all of this info, all of this need to have a holistic way to manage anxiety, and I put it all in one platform. So in the app, it's going to be a combo of nutrition, so recipes, really quick, easy recipes that have anti-anxiety nutrients, It's going to be mindset. It's going to have meditations for every anxiety scenario. So if someone has a big meeting that they're scared of, then there's a meditation for that. If they're feeling like they're being really self-critical, there's a meditation for that. And then movement as well. So there's yoga classes on the app that are of all lengths and all types of situations too. You want a class before sleep, you're having a panic attack and you need a class to calm down. I got it all there. And then it's all sort of together in these, um, not only are there sort of these individual resource buckets of all of these uh, different modalities, but some courses as well that are going to really put them all together in this sort of blueprint or system to, uh, to break it down for people. Because I think with anxiety too, there's a tendency to get overwhelmed. And when we get overwhelmed, it feels like too much, full stop can't go any further. And I don't want that for people. I want to show people that anxiety can be managed and it can be managed in an easy way that fits into your day, your lifestyle. So anyone that's listening, this this episode should be coming out right around the time the app is live. Where can people go if they want to get on a wait list or, or see more about the app? 
Yeah, so I'm going to be launching this app first with a couple of founding members. So I'm going to do an exclusive launch for a couple people. If you're interested in joining that group, uh, I would say my website is the best place to find out information about it, which is just heatherlilico.com. And then you can get on that wait list uh, for the app there. And the app is for people who are experiencing anxiety, like high functioning anxiety. So, you know, you're working in the corporate world, but you have a lot of self-doubt. You're overthinking, you're overanalyzing everything. It's for the people pleasers, the perfectionists. It really is the app that I wish I had in my anxiety recovery. That's beautiful. And we'll make sure we link it in the show notes, guys. Go to heatherlilico.com. We've linked it here. You can join the wait list. You can get on the app. You can see everything else that she's doing. You can work with Heather. You can work directly with Heather uh, uh, to improve yourself. Um, last question for you. You did mention that you have a practical, simple, quick meditation technique that really anybody can use if their nervous system is all revved up. Anyone that's listening right now that's saying, yep, that's me. What should they do? All right, let's do it together. The technique is called the physiological side. And it, uh, I at least heard it first from Dr. Andrew Huberman, who has a a great podcast as well. Uh, And he is big in neuroscience. And the physiological side is a technique where you inhale through the nose and you feel all the way up And then on full, you're going to take an extra little sip of air and then out the mouth, you're going to exhale it. So why don't we do one together and try it? Okay, great. All right. So listeners do it with us. We're going to take an inhale through the nose, take an extra little sip and then exhale it out nice and slow. And let's do one more for good measure. Take an inhale in, another little sip of the air. And then exhale, let it go. There we go. Just a couple rounds of that. will switch your nervous system over to your parasympathetic, your relaxing, calm, rest and digest side. Beautiful stuff. Heather, thank you so much. Uh, this has been fascinating and, and truly insightful. Thanks for having me on, Nate.